Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. The incumbent was trying to destroy his opponent by dragging his character down. But what these numbers say is that it's the incumbent whose character is in the toilet and the opposition leaders travelling okay. Still lots of don't knows, but these are as positive numbers as I've, as I've seen for the opposition leader over this political cycle. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to Australian Politics. I'm Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor, and today we're playing you a discussion about the Guardian Essential Poll. Every couple of weeks I discuss what the poll results mean with Peter Lewis and others for a webinar hosted by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. This week we talked about voters' views on international relations. Now, of course, that topic is particularly important given the Coalition's been working hard hard to portray Labor as weak on national security and to argue that it's not capable of managing Australia's already tense relationship with China. This discussion, just for clarity, was recorded on Tuesday and it was moderated by Ebony Bennett, who is the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. Um, well, we might go to the polling results, uh, just checking that people can see that. Apologies last week. The slides were very confusing. So if you are listening on the pod, pause for a sec and go and download our website, essentialreport.com.au, and you'll be able to actually go into each of these issues and have a look at it while we talk about it. What we're talking about here is the best party to manage the relationship with China. And um, What are the results show here, Pete? Well, it shows that Labor is actually seen as the better party. Um, 28 Coalition, 37 Labor, 34% unsure. And that's not what I don't, I don't think that's what the government would have expected. It wasn't what I was expecting either when it came back yesterday, but it just does show that this is not fertile ground. And whether that low rating is a context to last week's foray or a result of last week's forays, we're in the field, I think, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, while it was ongoing. But there, you know, if you, if you say really good politics is call and response, there's not much response to the call here. Yeah, Catherine, did that result shock you, given that everyone thinks it's home ground, safe turf for the coalition? Well, yes, in a way, yes. But I think there's one sort of point of nuance, though, that we should add. Uh, Obviously, 
uh, on this chart that we're looking at, uh, you know, Labor has a nine-point lead over the coalition in uh, in voter perception of the best party to manage the relationship with China. I think we shouldn't forget, though, that there are 34% uh, on this chart. The numbers are 28 coalition, 34% unsure, 37 Labor, right? 34% of respondents are unsure who the best party to manage the relationship with China is. And I think in part the the Prime Minister's motivation in accelerating the big scare last week was to play into this knowledge Mm. gap uh, that voters have about the the Labor leader at the moment. Mm. Our poll over quite a long period of time suggests that there are a number of voters who who just don't know what to make of Albanese. It's not that they dislike him. uh, It's just they don't really have a, a fix on him, right? Who is he? What's he about? Is he okay? Is he not okay? And I think that, in essence, you know, in a political campaign, if the combatants don't define themselves, then their opponents define them. Mm. And I think uh, that was in part what was motivating the Prime Minister last week. He wanted to sow this element of suspicion and doubt about Anthony Albanese and, and national security was like a soundstage in which this little morality play was being projected to people, if that makes sense. So, Although, ironically, I reckon it became more about him than Albo, um, as these numbers show. Well, that's the, that's the intriguing thing, Pete, isn't it? And it's sort of like looping back to Labor's strategy too. I mean, now that we've sort of made this point that it's that uncertainty that, that the Prime Minister's playing into, who is Anthony Albanese? Is he a safe choice, right? Is, is he a safe change in terms of government? Um so, you know, that's that's the area. But I, I wonder, too, in terms of returning to the nine-point lead that Labor has, Labor is considered the better party to manage a complex relationship with China, whether or not uh, Labor's efforts, I guess, over the last six months in particular to paint the Prime Minister as uh, somebody who stretches the truth, uh, who tells absolute porkies, uh, who, you know, acts sort of ruthlessly and politically in his own best interests. So there was a Labor campaign. There's what various people have said about Morrison, whether or not that's allowing people to discount what the Prime Minister is saying more forcefully than they would have been uh, had that view of Morrison not been sort of put yeah, out yeah. there. So, so anyway. Labor successfully introduced an element of doubt yeah, when it comes you, to yes. credibility because... We're really relying on Morrison's reputation here as the main seller of this um, this exactly. narrative. And when you go into the Morrison attributes, as we will, they're on they're in free fall. They really are in free fall. But, All right. Um, but coming now to Australia's relationship with China, you've asked people, Pete, what's their closest view about Australia's relationship with China? We can see sixty one percent say Australia's relationship with China is a complex relationship to be managed. Um, 26% or roughly a quarter Australia's relationship is a threat to be confronted and about 13% who are looking at, at it as a positive opportunity. Is that a new question or one that you've asked before? No, we've tracked it over a number of years and my colleague John Remington might come in in a second, let us know how that's tracked over time. But it, it does speak to that initial observation I made that this is not a binary proposition. The complexity of the relationship speaks to business opportunities, trade opportunities, Chinese, Australian, you know, migrants and second and third generations. 
it's worth noting that this sort of narrow cast of the Red Terror, I'm not sure how that plays in seats like Banks and Reid and Chisholm in Melbourne where Labor is putting up strong Asian Australian candidates. Um, I think there is risk all round in this, and this shows that the Australian public is more mature and less gullible than elements of the the press gallery who almost had a Pavlovian um, response to Morrison's scare um, that because he managed to pull off a miracle in 2019, of course he's going to come up with something again. And I thought the seriousness of which the analysis took what was really, you know, a spitball, spitfire attack was was also, I think, telling in the way this election will probably play out over the next few months. Alan, I want to come to you next. Obviously, 60% of Australians are pretty accurate there. It is a complicated relationship. It's a, an enormous trade partner, huge historical links between both countries. Um But where are we at in the debate uh, at the moment and where do you see things headed as we get to the election, particularly when it comes to that relationship with China? Look, I think Peter has put his finger right on it. If you don't know Alan, I'll just bust in at this point to tell you that Alan Beam is one of those distinguished former public servants in Canberra. He's a security specialist. He's also worked twice, I think, for a Labor parliamentarian's Greg Combe during the Great Carbon Tax War when he ran Combe's office and he also worked as an advisor, I think, during this period of opposition for uh, the Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong. The government is playing to that 26%. Uh, It's not playing to the other two groups. Um, I mean, I personally would probably fall into that 67% group. While I think there's a lot of opportunity perhaps in our relationship with China, at the moment we have to manage it. And I think that out there more broadly, that is what most people are thinking. Um, And uh, as I say, all I can do really is just amplify what Peter's just said, because for some time now, including on the, the work we did last year, our own poll on Taiwan, People are stepping back from the hysteria that um, this issue is being presented uh, in and and thinking, well, actually, it's much more complicated than that uh, and we've got to work to get it right. And and I, I suspect this is where the government is actually making a pretty serious mistake. Thanks, Alan. Uh, just coming to the tensions between Russia and Ukraine, Pete, can you walk us through these results? Um, look, they're spectrum results, aren't they? So it's kind of people are concerned about it. They're not saying more than a quarter of them saying they're extremely concerned. Um, you can't not be concerned at when you see something like this occurring. I guess, I guess my question again will be, I don't think they're numbers that you build um, a khaki election around um, and I don't see anything out of the normal in the spectrum of views we get when there are global events going on here. Um, Catherine, what were your thoughts when looking at these results? So obviously the Ukraine's much further away than any tensions with China. Yeah, well, it's not not a regional conflict, but obviously the spectre of a war in Europe is just a terrifying prospect and people locally will, will see it as such, I suspect, but that's got a way to play out, obviously, We've had an escalation today and I guess we've just got to see how this pans out. 
over the coming days and weeks in terms of the international community's response uh, and then how that bounces back into the political contest. You know, I was talking a minute or referenced a soundstage a minute ago. It sort of it plays on the soundstage. It's definitely there in the background. But as Pete says, it's not sort of there forcefully as uh, as it would be if it was, uh, I suppose, a risk right on our doorstep. But it is it is there. But also, Catherine, as it plays out, I reckon this reinforces that on national security, it is largely bipartisan. So it's not as if you're going to have Labor departing from the coalition. They're not going to be calling to send troops in or, for that matter, you know, waving Putin through. So this is really complex diplomacy. I think Australia is part of the Western consensus on how this is managed. And it will just be living proof that there isn't a huge difference between the major parties when it comes to issues like these. Um, I want to move on now to the approval of Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. Mm. Um, Any big changes here that we can see? Yeah, this is the first time that Morrison's been in net negative and the first time Albo's been in net positive since the bushfires. First time net positive ever for Albo. So 49.44, as you can see, down to up three in the disapprovals for our glorious Prime Minister and coming to Albo. The man from um, Marrickville, 39% disapproval, 42 approval. Still 20 don't know. There's only seven that don't have a view of Morrison now. That's pretty baked in. But if you're an opposition leader, your two enemies are the don't knows because that's an unknown how they're going to break in the end and the sense that you're always going to be marked higher in the disapproval because your job is to play negative and people don't like seeing negative. But you look at those numbers and line them up with... Abbott before um, 2013, and it's it's he's in much better shape. And coming to the leadership attributes mm. here, walk us through this. Ah, uh, so we've only done the six months. So I put the 12 month up on my Guardian, and again, if people want to go into the website essentialreport.com.au and look at the leadership attributes, they'll see that things have been dropping pretty heavily. The big change in the last six months is down. on being in control of the team, down eight in being trustworthy, down eight in more honest than most politicians. But I've got to tell you, 12 months ago, it's even more stark. All those drops are double digit. As for understanding the issues facing women, um, go surprised, but only a third would um, tick that box. We haven't asked that before, so there's nothing to compare them with. Mm. Um, John Remington, I wanted to throw to you here. Were there any details drilling down um, in leadership attributes here? Are there differences between men and women or in age groups or anything that kind of stuck out? Yeah, there were some stark ones as well. Um, rather differences, we also look at trends, particularly when we're talking about age groups. We tend to look at a younger cohort, 18 to 34 middle 35 to 54 and 55 and above and that's around a third of the population in each of those groups. Busting in again just in case you don't know John Remington he's basically the numbers guy for Essential. He's in charge of the polling and often provides us with the breakdowns and and cross what they call cross tabs so that we can interpret the data. And yes old people have a lot um, higher opinion of Scott Morrison in terms of those positive attributes we've got on the screen there, so good in a crisis, in control of their team and trustworthy. 
younger people have a more a lower positive opinion and with the mid-age group in the middle. Um, and then in terms of gender, yes, males have a more positive perception or more likely to say they have positive perceptions of Morrison, where women are less likely. So when you come to Alpanisi, which is on the next screen, in terms of the ages, that's flipped somewhat. So younger people have a more positive view of Albanese than older people, but there is little difference in the gender differences. And yes, old people have a lot um, higher opinion of Scott Morrison in terms of those positive attributes we've got on the screen there. So good in a crisis, in control of their team and trustworthy. Younger people have a more a lower positive opinion and with the mid-age group in the middle. Um, and then in terms of gender, yes, males have a more positive perception or more likely to say they have positive perceptions of Morrison, where women are less likely. So when you come to Alpanisi, which is on the next screen, in terms of the ages, that's flipped somewhat. So younger people have a more positive view of Albanese than older people, but there is little difference in the gender differences. This is starting, though, to line up with, in terms of the character contest, it's not a weak spot for the opposition leader. So, again, think about in the context of what was going on last week. The incumbent was trying to destroy his opponent by dragging his character down. But what these numbers say is that it's the incumbent whose character is in the toilet and the opposition leader's travelling okay. Still lots of don't knows, but um, these are as positive numbers as I've seen for the opposition leader over this political cycle. And just quickly moving on to voting intention here. Uh, which we never talk about except at election time. So, look, we had it. I know a lot of people that were listening to the podcast, at least, and probably some of you in the room were pretty depressed with our discussion last week because we weren't 56-44 like news poll. We don't go into that silly game because we have our don't knows involved, but we've got Labor 49, Coalition 45, 6% undecided in the 2PP plus our roll gold indicator of where the votes are going. Um, and a primary vote for Labor of 38, primary vote for the Coalition of 35 when before you distribute that last 6% of don't know. So I'm not even going to give you a make-believe 2PP that adds up to 100 because we don't believe in that, but it's not too bad, folks. But, again, it's not a scoreboard. And the other insight is it's not a horse race. This is actually a contest between an incumbent and a challenger with very different challenges and very different rules. Yeah, I might come back a little. Catherine, I wanted to come to you just about um, the Mike Cannon-Brooks bid in particular and what that says about um, our energy market and how we think that might play out in the election. It was a bid that was rejected, obviously, but it sounds like they're just back to the drawing board to come up with something that's more appealing to AGL. But I was just really struck, I guess, by the difference between the state level of government and the federal level of government with, I guess, how much to panic about um, bids like this and the early closure of Araring and also quite different um, from the head of AEMO, for example, uh, as well, saying something quite different as well. You're a long-term participant in that policy war. How do you think that's played out? It's really interesting. It's a really, really interesting move. Uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks has sort of been hovering around the energy debate and has sort of gradually put his toe a little bit deeper and then a little bit deeper uh, into the whole mess of the energy market. And this is obviously a very big play. And 
he is framing it as the potentially the biggest decarbonisation project in the world if you can basically take those emissions out of the atmosphere in a more expedited time frame than AGL had been working towards. Um, obviously, AGL, you know, thinks the price is too low, so uh, these guys will regroup. And obviously, it's not just Mike Cannon-Brooks. There's a major Canadian outfit, uh, Brookfield, also part of this consortium. So it, it's very, very interesting. It's sort of... <laughs> kind of in one flourish identifies uh, the fact that we've been stuck in this never-ending debate uh, about energy market rules and, and climate policy for a decade and governments sort of warring about ridiculous things uh, and then it sort of exemplifies this phenomenon that the market is coming in over the top of the Australian government's inability to resolve an issue that's actually very important. Yeah, I was really struck, Catherine. Uh, you talked there about how Mike Cannon-Brooks was talking about it as kind of a globally significant emissions reduction project, and it really just kind of shook me out of, I guess, the little narrow box that we've put climate policy in in Australia. I, I just... Um, it made me feel quite hopeful about decarbonisation. Yeah, hang on, Eb. Hang on. Hang on. We have no hope. There's no hope on this podcast. There's no hope <laughs> on this show. Just, just take a step back. Take a step back from the hope. No, yeah. no, no. I'm joking, of course. It's, it's very it's very interesting and significant. Obviously, it's got a long way to run uh, because... You've got to be able to buy it first. Well... <laughs> You know, in order to buy something, you want to have a willing seller and then there will be regulatory hurdles uh, for the transaction to walk through because there is a Canadian interest involved. Just an interesting thought to put out there in the event that there was a FERB issue with this acquisition in the event that it's rolling, in the event that it, it doesn't all fall by the wayside, if there was a FERB issue, I just think a really intriguing question is whether or not a major Australian industry superannuation fund might seek to partner with uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks on this acquisition. Uh, because, look, it's um, th th there's a lot of things going on at once here. It's kind of like these mega trends, obviously, that there's a lot of pension funds around looking for assets and investment in assets this energy transition is going to be enormously costly. It's going to be very beneficial also, but it's also we're running through a period where big dollars are required to drive the change. And Mike Cannon-Brooks is talking about a $20 billion, that's with a B, $20 billion investment in terms of replacing these coal assets. So that's all happening. And we've also got, in terms of the pricing issue, the toing and froing with AGL, one of the really fascinating things for me is that this is like a live action session about the value of stranded assets. And if I'm speaking double Dutch, what I mean by that is coal generators, you know, have a finite life. We, we're already in that world where coal generators have a finite life because of climate policy and because of the shifting cost curve with renewables. So one of the really fascinating elements of this is how much value can a company put on its stranded assets? 
And that's what we're going to see, this dialogue backwards and forwards between the consortium and AGL. But anyway, sorry, that's a big, big nerd dive, but. No, (laughs) we like nerddom around here. Um, I'm going to come now to questions from the audience and then, Pete, we might come back a little bit later to finish up on those final slides. The next question is from Ronald Smith. He's more or less asking about still our relationship with China and the coalition managing that, basically making the point that it was under a coalition government that the port of Darwin was sold to Chinese interests for a period of 99 years. Catherine, to me, it was quite extraordinary to see the heads of ASIO come out and do public interviews last week and really pointed to something going wrong. What What are your reflections on how that all unfolded last week? Well, it is, it is extraordinary and uh, not in a hyperbolic sense, like in a demonstrable sense, it is extraordinary for the current head of ASIO to step out twice in the space of a week to say in very, very polite terms, please, chaps, this is serious. Our job is to try and manage these really difficult pressures uh, and you are not making it easier for us. I genuinely have to scratch my head to think about the last time that happened. And look, the questioner is right to say that, uh, and it goes back to the complexity of the relationship. In terms of the history of Australia-China relations over the last 20 years, <laughs> there are a bunch of people present in uh, in the Australian political system who, you know, were great advocates of closer relations with China, you know, not five minutes ago. Now, I mean, what's changed? Well, the, the simple answer to that is China has changed. You know, there is an authoritarian regime in Beijing they're sticking their their elbows out. They they're destabilizing the world order in the way that you know Putin is currently trying to destabilize NATO in the other hemisphere. Right? These are serious times. This isn't all confected nonsense. That there are threats. We are, as the prime minister correctly says, we are in the most dangerous geopolitical environment since the end of the Second World War. So but the interesting thing, I reckon, Catherine, is that it is so serious that people don't want it to be politicised. And exactly. you're right, this isn't make-believe stuff. Australia um, pushed back on Huawei getting access to our 5G network for good reason. Um, we're concerned about Chinese money in Australian politics, which was kind of on the high-grade tap once they um, stopped developer donations for good reason. Um, The scrutiny of politicians that are compromised by China is welcome. It is just that it is not, there is nothing that you can see in the national interest by turning that into a partisan battle because it is so important to get right. Um, The next question that I've got here, and I've lost it now, there we go, is from Mel Smith. She asks the panel, any wild cards to look out for in this election, i.e. an independent winning a seat or maybe the rise of a green in some states or something like that? Catherine, looking at the, the whole, you know, election thing, we still don't have a bunch of Liberal candidates even pre-selected in some states, but do you have any tips for some potential wild cards to look out for there? Well, not so much wild cards because I think notwithstanding the um, New South Wales Liberal Party's inability to pre-select candidates in the state that will likely determine the outcome of the next election, hashtag go figure, um, (laughs) I think people who are engaged in politics, and that'll be most people on 
on this webinar and listening to the pod today, uh, I think will be across the sort of general national picture of teal independence, uh, you know, a bunch of sort of actors on the on the right from uh, Clive Palmer through the Liberal Democrats and Pauline Hanson, of course, as well as the major parties and the Greens. I think people have a reasonable fix on that. But what we haven't really sort of got our minds around collectively is the Senate. Uh, and that is always very important, how that all spins out. So um, uh, whether or not we end up with a minority parliament, whether we end up with a majority government, but the people in the lower house don't obviously have the numbers in the Senate, most, you know, very likely scenarios. So, you know, does Clive Palmer to get back? Does um, Campbell Newman, you know, enter the Senate? Senate? There's all kinds of interesting um, permutations. The there. Adams family. Well, well, it's it's just interesting. I don't know. I don't know quite how that's. And I'm I'm saying that not from a standpoint of knowledge. I'm saying that as a self criticism. I haven't really got my head around it yet. But I think it's potentially a very interesting Senate at the end of this election. Pete, did you have anything to? Oh ask yeah, about? I'll, I'll give you my wild card. If you look at history, since World War Two, government only changes in landslides. That. If it is a close election, the incumbent holds on. Now, Alan is the only one that will call me out on that. Whitlam only picked up eight seats in 72, but he picked up 26 um, in 69, the Don's party election that got close to the shore but not quite there. But since then, Fraser was 30. Um, Hawke was 26. Howard was about the same. Rudd was in the 20s. Even Abbott was 18. When it's a close election, incumbents, because they've got control of the resources because there's no anti-corruption bodies because they've got $16 billion in unaccounted spending, find a way of holding on. So if history is our guide, there is either going to be a wave election that Labor sweeps to power and teal independence and others will come on the back or there won't be a win at all. Um, the least likely history would tell you the truly historic result would be to Labor's to win narrowly. So I don't know what quite what that means to this group, and I've got some other theories I'll throw out over the coming weeks, but it feels to me that this election is about creating the wave of change. Um, the role of the leader is to get up on the board. Our job is to make sure they get into shore if you want to see a change of government. Alan, anything to add? After what Peter has said, uh, there'd be a lot to add. The, the numbers at the moment indicate, to me at least, that uh, a very narrow, a very narrow outcome or a hung parliament remains a, quite a strong possibility, given the levels of confusion. Um, some people would certainly hope that there'd be a very clear determination, but we don't know. And I just observe that Julia Gillard managed a very successful government uh, on the back of. Cross benches, the Greens may be predictable, but Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, she was certainly able to bring into an alignment with the government, which was to the advantage, actually, of the electorate and the people who voted. I think the Senate is critically important. And uh, as Catherine said, where that's going to land will, I think, make it difficult, probably make it difficult for whoever wins. As for unpredictable things, I just want to reflect very briefly on the warship incident in the Arafura Sea. There's an aspect to that that does worry me a lot. Uh, it's not the, the Chinese warships going through the Arafura Sea. They had every right to do that. But it's the unusual thing of, of directing a laser at an aircraft. 
Uh, I think that is unusual and, if true, is quite worrying because that kind of action can lead to catastrophic consequences. Um, that's why pilots are very, very reluctant and report every time a laser is pointed at an aircraft. It can bring an aircraft down because the pilot goes blind. So something like that could just flip the whole thing around and God only knows what happens. Mm. That sort of thing worries me. Yeah, thanks for that cheery thought. Um, <laughs> Catherine, um, we've got a couple of questions here that are just touching back on that Mike Cannon-Brooks offer to buy out AGL. Um one person, John Knox, commenting that the government seems dead set against the accelerated retirement of coal-fired power, and that did make me think about whether or not they'd use other mechanisms to try and stymie that kind of market behaviour. Um, and I guess other people asking, is that a wedge for the coalition? Because it is the market working. Technically, the coalition should welcome market intervention, sorting things out like Angus Taylor asked them to do. Mm. Well, it does It does put the government on the spot, but it, it also does put all political actors on the spot. And you can see that in, uh, in the sort of careful way that um, various actors have been circumnavigating these events. Uh, obviously, you're quite right to observe that you know, the, the so-called pro-market party <laughs> of when it comes to energy uh, you know, have Soviet-style interventions, which is, you know, an ongoing matter of confoundment. Um, you know, these sort of market interventions are supposed to substitute for a rational policy, and, of course, they don't. And this is why this bid coming over the top is so interesting. This It's basically saying the market's chosen the the direction the market knows which way uh, which way the cookie's crumbling and rather than wait around for these clowns to sort themselves out we'll just barrel in and get on with it uh, but it is complicated though for labor in contests like the hunter uh, because what uh, an accelerated coal closure puts in the mind of voters again is this idea of just transition of, of workers being managed out of uh, of carbon intensive industries which again sort of raises people's hackles and, uh, you know, promotes a conversation about work insecurity and all of that sort of stuff. So it's a bit tricky. Uh, it certainly has put the government, you know, sort of like, whoa, it, 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 uh, sort of rabbits in the spotlight for sure. But I, the politics at the sort of narrow cast level are more complicated than, than the message at the national level, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it did also just make me reflect, like you said, on that kind of a putting the government on the spot. That's Araring closing early, not long yeah. after Liddell was closing early and um, Hazelwood. Um, you know, this is not the first. It's, uh, yeah. you know, the fourth in a succession with more expected. It is something, you know, that I think people can see there's an obvious role for government to manage, particularly on the worker side of things here, and there's just kind of, no, no, even acknowledgement that this is an actual thing that's happening as we speak. No, no, no. But this is this is the this is the sort of amoral dimension of pretending that nothing has to change yeah. when when obviously things change all the time and will certainly change in terms of Australia's you know carbon intensive economy. Like it is already changing those changes will accelerate because, again, the dollars that drive these transitions, like two things drive transitions, policy and dollars, the dollars have made a call, the dollars know which way the transition's going and these very, very big liquid 
players in the market will be looking for opportunities in order to basically you know, invest in the new generation of long-term productive assets, right? That's what pension funds are looking for. Mm. So it's happening. Um, you know, the, the the coalition's failure to grapple with this and not only failure to grapple with it, active attempts to to basically circumvent, wind back action, pretend that things don't have to change, uh, as I've said, over a long period of time, unconscionable. These are unconscionable actions and they have, in fact, exposed workers in carbon-intensive industries to harsher, quicker transitions than would have been the case had this, you know, had orderly action started a decade ago. Alan, you're a long-term person in climate uh, as well. Did you have any reflections on on that this week, that, um, you know, that the transition is happening and we're kind of caught on the hop? I sure did. We worked very, very hard to land the Clean Energy Future package through both houses uh, under Gillard, and that contained a really good map for the future, which was immediately trashed when Abbott was elected. And we're now paying a very high price, I think, for for what happened in 2013 to 15. if you recall that clean energy future package, there were two big licks of money put to one side, one to look after uh, pensioners and, and people who are on allowances to meet their energy costs. The other was for the retraining of workers. And, and Catherine has just pointed out that had that been embarked upon almost a decade or so ago now, we would be in a much stronger position for the transition, which is absolutely inevitable, but people would be actually looking to secure employment uh, both through and after that transition. So I think we're just looking back on a mini tragedy, well, actually a maxi tragedy, um, and that is what I'd lament about, I must say. Mm. I did just want to throw back to you, Pete, and see if there was anything uh, from these last couple of slides that we can get up that you want to talk about, or do we want to wrap up? Look, I just, we don't even need to go up, but one of the key matrix for change of elections is, is the country heading in the right direction or the wrong direction. At this moment, we've got 40% in the right direction, 40% in the wrong direction, and 20% don't know. So game on, people. Um, And before we go, I just want to um, wish John all the best. John, it's the last time John will be with us for a few months. He's going off to support his partner with their first child. So thank you for all your work, John, and um, all the best from all of us at Pole Position. Thanks, Peter. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. That was our webinar show, Pole Position. That's uh, produced by the Australia Institute. There's a video of it, so you can see all of the slides that we referred to during the conversation on the video. But we also mentioned during the chat that you can pull up the Guardian Essential report on the Essential Media website. And in essence, you can play along with the conversation at home by looking at the slides. They're all up on that website. Uh, Thank you so much to Miles Martignoni, who of course is the EP of this show, and to Daniel Simo, who edited it this week. And we'll be back in your feeds this Saturday with a chat about the economy with your two favourite economy wonks, Greg Jericho and Shane Wright. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.